if we look at space heaters, for example, um, like a household space heater, uh, they're often 1,200 to 1,500 watts. <clears throat> and knowing how quickly they can heat up a room, it gives you some perspective for the amount of heat that you're actually generating as an athlete. So when you're cycling, um, you need to be able to get rid of all this heat uh, very effectively. The Triathlon Show 160. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Andrew Buckroll, co-founder of Stack, who, as you know, are great friends of the show and currently a sponsor as well. So, Andrew, I'm super grateful to have got to know him over the last uh, more than a year, I think, now. <laughs> Andrew might remind me when, when we first got connected. Uh, but uh, anyway, he is super nice and he's super smart, as evident from how uh, innovative Stacks bike trainers are, and not to mention the virtual wind tunnel technology that uh, Stack also provides, which uh, you can check out in episode 47 when I interviewed Andrew uh, the last time. But as we get into a bit in the interview, he's now already looking ahead into the next area where he believes and makes some great arguments for why the next big endurance breakthroughs might come from. And that is heat and uh, specifically how to how to deal with and how to get rid of excess heat. Because at a certain point, once our machines, our bodies run too hot, it will inevitably force us to slow down. So, uh, so learning how to deal with this and and have making plans for how to minimize this heat buildup that is critical, and that's what we'll get into today. So, Stack is the sponsor of today's episode, and uh, Andrew, as I said, is Stack's co-founder. You can find Stack on StackZero.com. That's S-T-A-C Zero spelled out dot com, and you can check out Stack's uh, bike trainers. The base model, the power meter model, and the Stack Zero Halcyon, which uh, is uh, the smart trainer. All of them are completely silent, which is uh, one of the great innovative functions that uh, they have. But they are also very practical in that you can fold them. They fold really low so that you can store them under your bed, for example. That's what I do. And you can you can use them as portable trainers. You can you can stuff them in a small or not a small, but in a backpack uh, that is sufficiently big and uh, and transport it with you and perhaps bring it to the pool like I do. And uh, sometimes when our team does swim, bike, brick workouts, we, we set up our trainers on the pool deck and, uh, and do workouts there, which is uh, really neat. Also, there's still a week left until Christmas by the time you hear this. And uh, if you don't know what to get your triathlon loved ones, then consider getting a bike trainer. If the person does not have a bike trainer, then they don't know what they're missing by not training through the winter on the bike. There's so much value in doing that. So uh, consider getting perhaps the base or the power meter model. If they already have a bike trainer, but uh, may want to upgrade their indoor bike training experience, then getting uh, the Stack Zero Halcyon and starting to use that smart trainer functionality might be the best gift that they get this Christmas. And any of their trainers are available for 20% off with the promo code that Show, all one word, all caps, on stackzero.com. 
And here's another great tip for your Christmas gifts to your loved ones, if they're into triathlon at least, or swimming, cycling, endurance sports in general, I guess uh, that is to get something from Roka, like a wetsuit, trisuit, swimskin, sunglasses, goggles, buoyancy shorts, etc. Roka carry all of it, and it's all a super high-tech, super high-performance and high-speed. And uh, I personally use uh, the Roka Maverick X, wetsuit i use the uh, gen 2 elite tri suit and i use the r1 goggles and uh, i use uh, the sim shorts which is uh, what uh, the name of roca's buoyancy shorts or neoprene shorts is and all of these are fantastic products the maverick x wetsuit and the gen 2 elite tri suit i really really can't put a number on how much uh, time it saves me in, in races, but it's significant among the best return on investment gear that I can think of, really, because I, I can definitely feel the difference compared to what I've been using before. And as you know, Roka now ships within the EU and UK, so no more import taxes or customs or duties to pay. And uh, on top of that, of course, you still get 20% off with the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps. So check them out on roka.com. And uh, if you're still looking for that perfect Christmas gift for triathlon friends or family members, then that's uh, another place that you can go. All right, let's get into the interview with Andrew. Today's guest on that triathlon show is a repeat guest, Andrew Buckrell from Stack. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. It's a great, a great pleasure to have you back on. And uh, we have an interesting conversation that we're heading into now with uh, something that uh, was recently on the agenda when we had the Ironman World Championships uh, less than a month ago by the time of this recording. And that is uh, the topic of heat and uh, how heat affects uh, the body and uh, performance in in endurance sports and uh, all sorts of things that we can do to potentially minimize that impact but uh, uh, first uh, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, your background in heat and your knowledge about that how, how come you're interested in that because the listeners may know you probably mostly from your bike trainers that you do at stack yes so actually my my academic background uh it's mechanical engineering um, but I have been working on, while well, my master's have completed, I'm working on my PhD right now. And it's almost entirely focused on heat transfer. Uh, it's more of an automotive industry application, but it's, uh, it's modeling of fluid flow and uh, heat transfer in automotive heat exchangers. So this is a topic that uh, I really enjoy, um, as, as nerdy and as geeky as that sounds. But uh, I love talking about heat transfer. And um, it's something that uh, that I'm really passionate about. And I honestly believe that this is going to be one of the next frontiers of performance. Uh, when you look at a lot of hot races, um, heat plays such a major factor. So I think uh, being able to deal with heat load and properly remove it from your body will allow any athlete to perform at a higher level. Yeah, so that uh, I totally agree with that. And we've had some pre-discussions about this interview already. So so I know roughly what we're going to talk about. And I'm uh, so, so I'm totally uh, on the uh, on the same page as you here regarding this uh, topic and its potential implications in the future Let, let's start on on a basic level like what what is heat transfer what different mechanisms do we have and for the people that don't have uh, the academic background that you that you do so heat transfer can be broken down into three major types um, so there's conduction convection and radiation and i would say most people have heard of all of those types so 
Uh, they all have different characteristics. Um, some of them are more relevant than others. Uh, for example, radiation is something that if you're sitting around a campfire, um, it can travel through a vacuum, so it doesn't require any intermediate fluid uh, or an intermediate uh, substance to transfer the heat. So this is um, on a hot day, you feel the sun when you're standing in sunshine or standing next to a campfire, that's radiation that's transferring heat. Uh, and that happens basically at the speed of light. And it's, uh, it's dependent on the temperature of the emitting object. So if you have a really hot emitting object, uh, you get lots of radiative heat transfer. But if you've got two objects near the same temperature, uh, there's virtually none. Uh, the next type is conduction. So a lot of people will be familiar with this. If you pick up a hot cup of coffee, um, you will feel the conduction from the, uh, the coffee into your hand. And depending on how hot it is, it can be very quick heat transfer and it can hurt potentially quite a bit. Um, it's not as relevant for, uh, for the athletic side of things. Uh, and I say that because your, your heat transfer will be dominated by the other type convection. Um, the only places on a bike, for example, that you're really contacting something else would be your saddle and your hands. So you've got a limited area for heat transfer and surfaces that are usually insulated with uh, a rubbery um, surface, whether it's a, a rubbery or leathery saddle surface or the, uh, the bar tape. Uh, convection is what dominates. Um, and this is where you have a fluid blowing over top of you and it, uh, it essentially just removes heat from the, the surface. And the faster, for example, the faster you're traveling on a bike, um, the more heat you can essentially sweep away. Because as soon as it's uh, removed from the surface, it's replaced by colder fluid. So you're keeping what's next to the surface of your body cool. Um, so this is why when you're traveling quickly, often higher temperature environments don't feel quite as hot. So just, just to be clear here, uh, the fluid that you refer to, it, it doesn't have to be a fluid in the in the practical sense. It can be air or, uh, or a yes. substance like that. Really. <laughs> yeah, that's a very good point. Um, air is a fluid. Uh, we can't see it, so people don't often think of it that way. Um, but one of the examples I like to use for, um, for people, at least who are in, in snowy climates, is when you're driving on the highway behind uh, a car or a transport truck, you can see the wake of the vehicle in the snow. Um, so it, uh, it allows you to see the, the movement of the air a little bit more clearly than you would normally be able to see because it's not typically visible. Um, so a lot of people uh, just don't ever really think of air as being a fluid, but it, it does uh, behave almost identically to water. And quite often water is used as a test material to replace air in certain circumstances. You have to be careful about how you control the experiment, but it actually makes for a, a very relevant comparison. Mm. So, so let's talk through an example. I know you've done uh, quite a few calculations on on this to to give some numbers for people to make it make it quite practical. What what can heat transfer uh, look like in terms of like, for example, on the bike in in an Ironman race? Well, can can you walk us through your example and your calculations that you've done? Well, I think the the first place that we should probably start is looking at how much heat someone generates. Um, because it's, it's pretty intuitive that the harder you exercise, the more heat you're going to generate. And the efficiency of the human body is actually not bad. Um, but we still generate a lot of waste heat. So for example, if you're exercising at a rate of around 150 Watts, um, a typical person might output 600 Watts of waste heat. Um, now the, when you look at waste heat in terms of wattage, um, it's kind of, it takes a while for people to realize or to think of it that way. They think of power 
uh, going to the pedals in terms of wattage, but it's actually um, because of how the, the calculations for energy works, uh, you can convert or at least compare the amount of uh, wattage just between those two, uh, mechanical work and, and thermal work. Um, so when we're looking at uh, the 150-watt athlete, uh, 600 watts of heat loss, you can scale that up to a 300-watt athlete looking at an Ironman, for example. Uh, this athlete will now output around 1,200 watts of waste heat. And to give that reference, uh, if we look at space heaters, for example, um, like a household space heater, uh, they're often 1,200 to 1,500 watts. <clears throat> and knowing how quickly they can heat up a room, it gives you some perspective for the amount of heat that you're actually generating as an athlete. So when you're cycling, um, you need to be able to get rid of all this heat uh, very effectively. And you you end up with this problem where if you can't transfer the heat out of your body, it has to go somewhere and it ends up as essentially storage. So this will lead to your core temperature increasing, which ultimately le leads to your body saying, basically, that's enough. We need to throttle back a little bit. And it's these protective mechanisms in the body that we're trying to avoid that, that inherently make you slow down. Uh, so it's, it's very important to keep yourself cool just to, just to avoid these physiological limitations. So how, how quickly can, can this happen? Is, uh, if you're exercising at a, at a low rate, is there still going to be a slow buildup over time or a six hour ride in an Ironman, for example? And, and where is the critical point when, when you can't, uh, when, when that threshold comes where you can't go any harder or your body actually starts to make you go slower? So there, there will be a point. Um, again, it depends a lot on external circumstances, but uh, to give you reference, if you were to fully insulate your body, meaning you're not allowing any heat transfer out um, and uh, no radiation out. Uh, so all of the energy, 100% of the waste heat is essentially stored in your body. Uh, so looking at um, someone like myself, so 77 kilograms, um, it would take around 600 seconds or 10 minutes exercising at 300 watts uh, for me to overheat. So, uh, and the, the criteria I'm using for overheating is essentially two, two degrees Celsius increase in core body temperature. And that's where your brain chemistry starts to have problems. It's at the limit of heat stroke. Um, so it is a very critical temperature. It's something you want to avoid. But 10 minutes is not a long time. Um, it's obviously a lot shorter than an Ironman bike leg. So when we look at this insulation, um, so wearing a winter jacket, we need to remove the heat somehow. We need to figure out, okay, if we take off the winter jacket and now we're exercising in a different environment, how do we actually get rid of this amount of heat? So I'll, I'll refer to this uh, at a couple different points, but uh, keep in mind the 10 minute limit as the baseline that we're using. Yep, and uh, so uh, let's see. From, so from here, uh, this is with uh, kind of an extreme case when you when you have the the insulation, the winter jacket, and uh, basically zero, uh, getting rid of the heat at, at the rate of zero. Uh, if if we go to the more practical example of uh, of actually riding outside, or at least first removing your clothes, maybe having having a fan, alternatively riding outside. How how do we then go from this ten minutes to potentially, hopefully, longer times to exhaustion? So um, the, the different uh, forms of heat transfer that we can look at would be either convection or radiation. So um, looking at uh, radiation as a starting point, if you're exercising on a hot day, it's pretty obvious to a lot of people that, um, that you would feel quite a bit hotter. So how much heat do you gain 
for example, when, when you're exercising under these radiation conditions. So uh, if you're wearing a white shirt, uh, let's see my calculations here. Um, if you're wearing a white shirt and you take into account all of the, the sun's energy that's reflected off the ground and coming from the sky, you would gain around 200 watts, 210 watts. Uh, if you're wearing a black shirt or a black uh, training kit, then you're gaining about 250 watts, which is actually around a 20 to 25% increase in the amount of heat that you have to get rid of now. Um, so that's why on a hot day, um, and people talk about this all the time with runs, but on a hot day, um, it's good to stay in the shade because you're actually reducing the amount of heat that you need to get rid of, uh, which will lead to a lower core body temperature. Um, so it's a pretty significant increase. And after doing these calculations, uh, I realized that I have a black race kit. So I think I'm going to reevaluate the uh, the choice I have of clothing. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting I, because I think that like probably 70, 80% of the, of the race kits that are on the market, they are, are like at least the majority of the, of, of them are black. I, I think it's, it's weird, but, but I, I started to think about it when I, when I got my new race kit from Roka in uh, this, in the summer. And I specifically saw that they had two, two versions. They had the black and the white and, and I said, well, I want the white one. <laughs> Obviously, I don't want to have that extra heat. But but then starting to think about it, when you look at different uh, e-commerce web shops where you can buy tri, tri suits, and even just looking around you at races, a lot of the race race kits that are out there are, are black. <laughs> Do you have any idea why that is? I think it's just marketing. It looks cool, and not cool in a thermodynamic sense, but cool in you know a yeah. style. <laughs> yeah. So. It's, uh, yeah, it's just something that people gravitate towards. It's, um, the other thing too, is I've noticed that, uh, white is not a very forgiving color when you're hanging around bikes and when you're sweating a lot. So there could be that side of things too. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually my, my race kit is, uh, is white only on the, on the upper, upper half of the body and then the, the legs are still black. So there might be a reason for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad strategy actually. <laughs> Uh, all right, so so let's continue with uh, with. So you mentioned the radiation, the example of of the effect of that. So if we then start to take convection into account as well, yeah. So convection uh, can actually play a very large role. Um, so a lot of it depends on the temperature difference between you and the surroundings. So if you're looking at uh, two different conditions where you've got um, and I'll explain this in a little bit more detail, but a temperature difference of five degrees versus 10 degrees, you essentially get twice the heat transfer for the 10 degree case. So your skin surface temperature, depending on where it is in your body, will range from around 32 to 35 degrees. Uh, so if you're exercising in a 30 degree environment, um, it will, your temperature difference is between two and, and five degrees there. So not a huge temperature difference. So, so just, look at, just to be clear here, when you mentioned those two conditions, the five degree and the 10 degree difference, we're not talking about the, the ambient temperature. We're talking about the difference between your skin temperature and, and the ambient te- temperature. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So how, how large of a temperature difference is there between you and the environment? Um, and that's one of the big drivers of convection. Um, so comparing the 30 degree environment where you have, might have a maximum of five degree temperature difference, uh, and a 20 degree or lower environment, uh, where you might have a 15 degree, uh, difference in, in temperature, um, you're getting at least three times as much heat transfer, possibly more depending on how your body changes under the conditions. Um, so the sample calculations I did, 
Um, so looking at, again, with reference to our 10 minute baseline with the, the winter jacket. Um, so 30 degrees with no wind, you're only losing 40 watts of, uh, of heat transfer, which would increase your time to exhaustion or time to overheating only by about 30 seconds. Um, so 40 watts is basically inconsequential. And this is just uh, taking into account uh, a minute amount of air movement from your legs. Um, so to put that into perspective, um, if you imagine exercising in a greenhouse, um, it's still going to be very oppressive and very uncomfortable. And the temperature would be probably close to 30 degrees. So most people would probably agree when they think of that environment that they're not going to really be able to exercise with very much efficiency or effectiveness. And again, I'll cut in here one more time because uh, just to make sure that everybody is, uh, is on the same page with that uh, loss in 40 watts of heat transfer. So now we're referring to when you're training at, you're exercising at 300 watts and you have that 1200 watts of heat that is generated. So so it's only 40 watts uh, 40 watts less that your body generates needs to generate under those conditions compared to the baseline. That that's what we mean with the 40, 40 watt loss. Is is that right? Yeah, that's that's correct. So um, you're basically going from the amount of heat that you need to remove from your body from 1200 watts to around 1160 or thereabouts. Yeah. So so, this is, um, so so just just to just to clarify again for the listeners, this is not something that you would see. We're not talking about any 40 watt differences on your power meter, but this is just the no, sort no. of things things that happen in your body that will make you be able to to exercise at that intensity for a longer or a shorter period. And in this case, it's still very very short at 10 and a half minutes. Yeah, yeah. There's almost no change to the uh, the amount of time to overheating. Um, so, and this is 30 degrees, uh, not taking into account sweat. Um, so, this would be like exercising in a very humid environment, and it, it would just be uncomfortable, and you would not really increase your time to exhaustion very much. Uh, when you do look at increasing the amount of airspeed, so imagine being now in a greenhouse with a big fan in front of you. Uh, so 45 kilometer an hour wind would actually increase your time to exhaustion to 15 minutes. Um, so now you're, you're adding 50%, which is starting to get into a pretty significant increase. Um, you're still not at the point of really being able to exercise at a steady state condition, at least at this output, but it gives you an idea of how much of an impact convection can have. Uh, and the next example, so going down to a 20 degree environment, really puts things into perspective. Um, so with no wind, um, so again, exercising kind of, it's like if you're on a trainer in your house and don't have any fans on, um, it only increases the the time to overheating from 10 minutes to about 11 and a half minutes. So this is 20 degrees, no fan. So it really doesn't make that big of a difference. But now if you use the same equivalent fan, the 45 kilometer an hour wind, your time to exhaustion actually goes up to around two hours. Um, so so this, this, is, this is quite crazy, but it has a very huge practical implication, I think, that if you want to do quality training indoors, you have to have that fan. Because it makes a, yeah. huge, a yeah. huge difference in, in terms of how, how you can perform when, when you're performing at least at, at that higher level of output. Yeah, and there is a bit of a caveat to this, but um, or at least another factor that comes into play, but... I completely agree that you're going to get your most effective training with uh, a fan. And um, so I picked up this tip, uh, I forget where, but um, 
I've actually got a couple fans on a remote control switch, so I can actually just push a button. I don't actually have to get off and reach the fans. Um, there's a little remote control that I can use to turn on a couple big industrial fans. So when you have two of those going, um, it's amazing how quickly you can cool down. I actually don't like to start the workouts in the winter with the fans on because it's too cold. Uh, but shortly after the workout starts, it feels quite nice. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we can talk about your fan setup, by the way, later. I think that's uh, that's yep. another thing that we can get into. Uh, but uh, so did you have your a next condition and or a next factor that we, we should uh, add to this this whole scenario and these calculations now? Yes. So the other big factor is evaporation. And this is what really makes the difference for a lot of athletes. When you look at an environment like Kona, where we're dealing with 70 or 80% humidity versus somewhere like Arizona, where we've got uh, you know, in the middle of the desert, almost no humidity in the air. Um, so the, the relative humidity is just a measure of how much water the air is holding uh, compared to its overall capacity. So if you've got a low relative humidity, it means it's, it's very willing to accept additional water, meaning your sweat will be very effective. It'll be evaporated quickly. Um, if it's a high relative humidity, um, and some people may have experienced this, if you take a cold glass of water um, out, uh, out into a, a hot, humid environment, um, you'll often get the condensation on the side because you're now um, condensing all the water out of the air by decreasing the local temperature of the, the air. Um, so this is something that, uh, that you would see quite often in a place like Kona where it is this high humidity, uh, but not so much in a place like Arizona. So the reason evaporation is so effective is because of uh, phase changes. And phase changes store a tremendous amount of energy. And most people are familiar with um, just a very common phase change with ice melting. So when you put ice in a drink, um, it will cool the drink down quite a bit without the ice actually changing temperature. So it, uh, it stores so much heat that um, the body has essentially evolved to use this as a heat release mechanism. Uh, and to, to put this into perspective with um, uh, the numbers we were talking about before, so if you sweat two liters an hour, which is, I think, what I've measured my sweat rate at, um, it's, it ends up being around 1,200 watts of cooling if you evaporate 100% of that. So that's if, if all of my sweat were evaporated, just the sweat alone would be enough to keep me cool for an indefinite exercise period, um, which is quite substantial. So um, it's, there's a reason the body sweats. <laughs> so it's, it's extremely effective at getting rid of heat. Um, but when you do get to these humid environments, this two liters an hour, um, it, it no longer, uh, evaporates. So a lot of it, um, if you're exercising indoors, a lot of it will just end up in a puddle underneath your, your bike. And I quite often see that. So it's, uh, it's something that you want to make sure that you're, you're evaporating as much as possible. Yeah. And, uh, so, so to give a perspective again, with the, in a dry environment, like, can you actually evaporate 100% or close to 100% of that two liter sweat rate? Or is that something that never happens in practice? And, and how much in that case can be evaporated? It's, it's something that uh, can happen to varying degrees. So if you're, uh, if you're riding in a very a dry environment, the faster you are, it's kind of like convection, it's actually very analogous to convection in terms of um, uh, how heat and mass transfer are basically calculated the same way, almost identical equations, just different, uh, different values that you use in them. Um, so the faster you're traveling, or the more airflow you have, the more you can evaporate. So if you're 
sitting at home in, in your basement exercising and you've got a fan on you, um, you will evaporate a lot of the sweat. And uh, if you don't have the fan on you, it will just kind of run down and, and puddle underneath you. Uh, so if you can travel quickly, then sweat becomes very effective. So on the bike, uh, when you're traveling at 35 to 45 kilometers an hour, you can evaporate a significant amount of the sweat. Um, but when you're running, this is when it tends to accumulate. You don't get that same amount of evaporation. Your sweat rate might not change that much, but a lot of it's being essentially wasted now. Um, it's just, uh, it's making your clothes wet and, you know, running down your, your legs and, and not really evaporating effectively and not removing the heat effectively. Mm. And, and is there a difference because different people have different sweat rates? How, how does that affect the, the whole time to exhaustion uh, scenarios that, that we have been walking through here? Uh, so I don't know the exact physiology behind why people have different sweat rates. Uh, one thing that I do know is the heat acclimation protocols that people often talk about. Uh, that will allow someone to start sweating at an earlier point. So when you're dealing with a high heat environment, if you're properly acclimated, um, you essentially start sweating earlier, uh, which will allow your body to remove heat for a longer period of time, waiting or not waiting until you you end up um, in an uncomfortable or an unsafe condition. So your your body's getting ready for the storm that it sees coming, essentially in terms of heat generation. Um, but the I think there's a lot of it that's um, it's just your own physiology. So how, I, I don't know if it can be influenced that much. Um, and I know you had talked to Stephen Chung a couple of months ago. Yep. Um, he's probably one of the experts that, uh, that I'd recommend talking to about the physiology behind it. Um, so I don't have a whole lot that I can contribute in, in that side of things, but um, in terms of just the heat transfer, um, it, it can limit the amount of heat transfer that you end up, uh, well, you end up capable of, uh, getting out of your body. Um, and there are some people, I can't remember the name of the condition right now, but, uh, basically where you have limited or almost no heat transfer or no sweat, um, which means you're at a significant risk of overheating in a lot of environments because now you just can't get rid of this thermal energy and your body just accumulates the heat. Your core temperature goes up and you end up in an unsafe condition. That, that's what that's what a lot of animals have right like they, they don't sweat in the same way as humans so that's why humans are really born to run uh, for real and are, are the the ultimate endurance machines when we compare to, <laughs> to most of the animals in in the animal kingdom yeah and actually that's a really interesting point um i'm trying to remember i think it was uh one of the bbc nature documentaries i was watching um where they're talking about kangaroos that actually lick their forearms um they can't sweat but what they do is put saliva on their forearms and the evaporation of that significantly cools down uh, their forearms. And because there's so much blood flow through that area, they have a big impact on their uh, their core body temperature. And they actually had thermal images to show one side of the forearm was uh, was quite, well, relatively cold and one side was warm. And that's purely because of the evaporation. Oh, interesting. Interesting. What, what, what about humidity then? We, we talked about airspeed and uh, sweat rate. Don't have any, any conclusions on the sweat rate side, but we'll see if Stephen can, can maybe help us uh, with that. And we can add, I can add an update to a later episode. But, but humidity, like you mentioned, we've been talking about Hawaii and compared it to Arizona, for example. Uh, what role does that play? Uh, it's probably the largest single factor in determining how much evaporation occurs. So the, the two liters per hour number that I mentioned, um, that might be something that's possible in Arizona, but you look at, uh, 
the the coverage for um, the Ironman Kona race, and people are always covered in sweat um, because there's just nowhere for it to go. The the air is essentially saturated in water already. It's uh, 70 or 80% humidity, which significantly limits the amount of um, evaporation that's possible. Uh, and if we go back to our initial, our 10 minute uh, baseline for overheating, um, if we were to factor in just the, the two liters per hour of sweat, um, so Arizona conditions, basically, you could, or at least under my conditions, I could exercise almost indefinitely with that. Um, if you reduce the amount of evaporated sweat by 50%, that goes down to 30 minutes. Um, if you've got 25% of your sweat evaporated, which is probably closer to the Kona conditions, you're only going 15 minutes of that power output, um, which is going from indefinite to 15 minutes. Uh, so only a 15 or sorry, 50% increase over the baseline. Um, that's not very significant. So the, the impact of humidity is tremendous with this. It's, wow. uh, it's, it's something that can't be underestimated. And it's why so many people have issues when they go to a place like Hawaii, because they're used to exercising at a higher output and their bodies just can't deal with that heat. You can't, uh, you can't get rid of it. It has to go somewhere. So you end up storing it and your body, it, it goes into kind of a, a safety mode. It goes, uh, it limits the performance that you can't generate the heat because it's worried about saving you from dying essentially. So what can we do, regardless of if we're talking about a humid race, a hot and humid race, or just a very hot race where we're other factors, the temperature, the small temperature difference between the skin and the, the environment, whatever it may be, we, it seems sounds to me that it comes down to, to really trying to, as much as possible, whether it's through evaporation or other tactics, like keep that core body temperature down. And, and what are the methods through which we can we can do that? So one of the most effective things you can do is taking in cold fluids. Um, so if you internally take in a glass of cold water or a piece of ice, um, you're transferring almost 100% of that energy into your body and, and decreasing your core body temperature through that. So it's, it's very effective. Uh, if you dump it on the outside of your body, it's still pretty effective. Um, some of the heat's being lost to the environment, but um, for the most part, it's, uh, it's cooling you down. Um, so those are really the primary ways I would look at controlling the heat in those conditions. Um, and really there's, there's some simple things you can do. Um, and I have done in the past where before a race, uh, you just freeze your, your bottles that you might have in transition. Um, so you want to make sure that you can get some of the fluid out. So coming up with the right mixture of ice to fluid is, is important, but, um, you want to be able to, uh, have as much cold fluid essentially as you can. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's something that I would really encourage people to look at just, um, uh, just taking advantage of ice and phase change that way. How, when you have been doing it, can you give an example of, of how you did that? You just uh, left it in the, your bottles in the freezer overnight, or did you have like those kinds of special bottles that have, uh, uh, that have an, an internal bottle as well? I don't know what the correct term for that would be, but uh, what, what would it look like in practice? Yeah. So, um, well, one of the, one of the, the advantages I guess I have is, um, so I ride a, a Ventum bike, uh, which as I understand, you just got one as well. And yes. maybe you'll be able to take advantage of it. Um, but they've got the big, uh, water reservoir on the top. So I actually just put that in the freezer the night before the race. And, um, so it's, uh, Ironman Mont Tremblant, which was, um, wasn't a hot, hot race, but it ended up in the afternoon being 25 to 30 degrees, which for me, for a Canadian feels pretty hot. 
Um, and it's heat isn't something I deal very well with. So I wanted to make sure that when I went out onto the bike, I'd have a lot of cold fluid. So you get this 1.4 liter chunk of ice, essentially. And I had a couple other bottles mounted on my saddle so that if I needed fluids right away, I could take it um, just instead of having to wait or being forced to wait until the, the bottle had fully thawed. Um, but having that source of cold water there all the time is fantastic. Um, taking, taking a drink of cold water instantly gives you this relief. And um, a lot of the, the, the temperature control happens Well, it's, it's within your brain controlling all the um, uh, just all the, the body processes. So if your brain starts to perceive that you're, uh, you're cooler, um, it will allow you to exercise at a higher level. Uh, and there's, there are some tricks that, uh, that people have done in the past with this. Um, some as simple as having, um, I believe it was menthol. Uh, so something that evaporates quickly placed in the mouth and it just gives you this perception of coolness. And it was a bit of a placebo effect. It wasn't actually cooling down your body, but it was uh, making your body think that it was cooler, at least temporarily. Um, and it allows you to exercise at that higher level. So using the same theory, when you're actually taking in cold water, uh, or cold fluid, then you you do get that benefit almost right away where your body is now saying, I'm not completely overheated. I'm, I'm having, you know, I'm having this uh, access to the, the heat removal. Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, what about the run? That uh, is a bit more difficult than, than the bike because we typically don't run with, with our own bottles in, in a race at least. So anything that we can do there that comes to mind? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. Um, and this is why I think one of the reasons that a lot of people struggle in the run, um, pacing is the other obvious issue, but, um, if you have access to any ice, if the course has ice, um, from my own personal experience, I did this where I noticed my run pace was slipping off and I just grabbed a couple cups of ice and I literally shoved it down my tri suit, um, and it tended to migrate downwards, but uh, which was a little uncomfortable, but it was also a lot of relief as well. Uh, but it, uh, my, my pace immediately picked up when I had that cooling because um, the ice was sitting around my core for a lot of it, um, which actually was quite effective at um, probably temporarily decreasing my body temperature. Um, but if you ever have access to sponges or anything like that, um, then having the sponges placed in your tri suit is something that, uh, that I would recommend that people do. And you can see this with, uh, Patrick Lange. He's very good at controlling this, uh, in his races. And he actually, I believe had some pockets sewn into his tri suit so that he could keep sponges where he liked them. Um, so there's a lot of little tricks like that. Um, but really it's just whenever you have the opportunity, uh, if you pick up water, um, especially if it's cold or ice, just, uh, dump it over yourself. Um, so, and that's, what, that's, oh, go ahead. Yeah. So, so, so speaking about the sponges, uh, it's something that's, uh, related to that kangaroo, uh, discussion that we had with uh, them having, having their arteries, uh, close to the, uh, or big arteries close, close to the skin surface area and under their forearms is, uh, is that something that we can use, like strategically place the sponges in places where we, where we have that sort of, uh, very, uh, close to the surface kind of, of blood flow. Yeah, actually, that's a really interesting thought. Um, one thing that you could possibly do is look for areas where you tend not to sweat or where the, all of your sweat has evaporated. And if you keep those areas wet, um, if you have this sponge that you can use just to even, as, as gross as it sounds, even to redistribute your own sweat so it's evenly spread over your body, um, something like that could actually be 
quite effective because um, now you're taking advantage of the extra surface area that you didn't have before. Um, so even in relatively high humidity environments, you may be able to drive up the amount of uh, heat that's evaporating. Um, but that being said, it takes a lot of uh, mental faculties to be able to to think of this and to action on this during a race. Uh, and quite often when people get into the run, you're pretty stressed out or at least you're tired and maybe not thinking 100%. But um, it's it's one of those things that if you practice on a hot day when you're training, um, you're more likely to take advantage of it in a race. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess one of the main takeaways of, of this interview has been like, for first of all, getting a clear picture of how important this this is. Like, we've seen how much the the humidity, for example, has an impact if it's uh, if it's a cone like humidity versus an Arizona like humidity, and and that in itself will hopefully help help people to understand how important it is to make use of these little strategies like having cold cold drinks and uh, pre-cold drinks and and using sponges etc but there's one more thing that uh, you mentioned as well the the heat acclimation protocols that we discussed with steven chung and i'll just uh, link to that episode in in this episode description so we don't need to go into detail on 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 uh, heat acclimation in this episode but do you have uh, any sort any thoughts on how how effective the the heat acclimation strategies that you might use the heat acclimation protocol might be compared to doing these small in-race strategies to to cool yourself down? Well, um, so I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to go to the Ironman World Championships this year. Um, and when honestly, when, when I landed in Hawaii, I thought, this is terrible. This is, this is so miserable. It's so hot and so oppressive. I don't know how anyone can exercise that in, in these conditions. And I honestly thought that for most of the week I was there, but by the end of the week, I noticed just being in that environment for, for the week, um, I was starting to feel less and less, uh, impact of the actual temperature. Um, cause when I initially got there, I basically, um, start sweating as soon as I started moving and, by the end of the week, it was still, I was still sweating quite a bit, um, but it just didn't feel as problematic. It felt more, I don't want to say comfortable, but just a little bit better. Um, and it's, I think just, first of all, spending time in an environment helps you acclimate and that's how your body is naturally, like that's, that's why it acclimates because when you get used to being in this environment for a long period of time, um, then it's, it, it does try to adapt and the body is fantastically flexible in what it can deal with and what it can learn to, uh, to accommodate. Um, but one of the challenges that you run into is, uh, someone, you know, who's living in a Northern country like Canada or Finland, uh, where if you're training in the winter and you only have cold temperatures, uh, but then you, you want to go race somewhere in the, the Southern hemisphere, like going to Australia in the winter for Canada, for example, it's going to be a huge change and it's going to be very difficult to properly acclimate. So you need to come up with creative ways, whether it's uh, um, even exercising with the fan off can be one way that you can actually get used to the uh, heat acclimation um, and uh, saunas or hot baths. I've heard being very effective. Um, there's a lot of theories on that. And I don't, um, I don't feel I have the expertise to really comment in too much depth but uh, things like that, I think, could be quite effective um, at, at preparing someone for a race. Yeah, uh, I, definitely. And, and we, we did go into a lot of those things with, with Steven in, in that interview. But uh, so, so do you, uh, it's okay if you don't know, but I, I'm just curious if you do have any idea of 
what is more important like if somebody is going to completely ignore doing any sort of heat acclimation for a hot race or they're going to completely ignore uh, cooling their freezing their water before the race and and having actual cool liquid to drink and ignoring having put it, placing their sponges and using ice if, if available on the course which one should they rather ignore which one gives less bang for the buck than the other um i would say probably most of your bang for the buck would come from actually the heat acclimation uh and one of the reasons i say that is because there are so many things you don't have control of once the race starts so if you're dealing with an Ironman race or another long distance race, if you have to keep something frozen for the entire day, um, you don't know what happens to your run transition bag uh, in terms of temperature or your special needs bag once you hand it off to someone else. Um, so it could be stored in, a, in the sun. It could be stored you know, in, in a condition where you can't maintain a cool bottle. And when I did race Tremblant earlier this year, um, my I had frozen all my bottles and my, uh, my run special needs was just, it was... Uh, you know, uh, lukewarm water. It, it was kind of, uh, unpleasant to drink, especially by the end of the day, you, you have a lot of flavor fatigue with the, um, the nutrition that I was using. And it was something that, uh, once it's warm, I just did not want to drink it. So I think I took one sip and then kind of tossed it aside. Um, but, uh, yeah, I would say the heat acclimation is probably the, the biggest or the lowest hanging fruit. Uh, and the other things are just icing on the cake. If you can take advantage of freezing the bottles, um, if you can take advantage of preparing everything and making sure it's cool for the race, then that's a, a big benefit to you. And that will have an immediate impact, but because there are a lot of things you can't control, I would say not to rely on that. Um, and the other parts of it, getting, dosing yourself with water and getting sponges and ice, um, that's pretty much common sense. And I think a lot of people would, would try to do that when they're racing. Uh, yeah. so I think that's how I'd probably recommend people approach it. Right, that makes sense. Uh, so I guess that well, actually, no. Going back to that, your fan setup. That, that's one one thing that I made a note to to ask. So first of all, how powerful should your fan be? Should you have two fans? And, and what's your recommendations for the fan setup for your indoor training environment? So at one point, I had three <laughs> three fairly large industrial fans that uh, that would kick up all the dust uh, that was nearby <laughs> when I turned them on. And in the winter, it was quite uncomfortable to, to turn them all on at once until I, I got into the workout. Um, so I found this, it was quite cheap, but um, it was just a, an Amazon buy. And it was this remote setup where you plug something into a switchable outlet. And this allows me to, from my bike, uh, be able to, to switch on and off the fans very, well, very easily. So if I'm uh, going into a, a hard interval, I can keep the fans on. And then in a recovery interval where I'm not generating much heat, um, I can turn the fans off and kind of get, keep myself at a more moderate temperature instead of overcooling myself. Um, so the fans that I use, uh, and it will be dependent on the person, but they're, um, they're actually essentially shop fans or kind of industrial fans that are, uh, probably about 50 centimeter diameter. I think they're like two or 300 Watts each. Um, they make a ton of noise. So it's, it's kind of funny because, uh, um, yeah, the stacks zero, but <laughs> <laughs> which makes zero noise, but yeah, the fans. That... <laughs> yeah. So that's, yeah, exactly what I was going to say. Um, so I turn on the fans and it's just a, a huge racket, but, um, yeah, I think it, it depends a lot on your conditions and, and what you need. Um, the higher output someone has, the more cooling they'll need. Um, and then, 
Yeah. And, and it all comes down to preference too. Um, because like I said, once I turn the fans on, especially when you've got kind of a sheen of sweat covering you, uh, you do notice the effectiveness of evaporation very quickly because your, your skin temperature gets driven down very quickly. Um, so the fans will actually overcool you to such a level that it becomes almost uncomfortable until you build up that, that temperature again. Um, so having, having the additional control is quite nice. It's quite convenient. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's, uh, that's a very good tip. So, um, listeners can go to Amazon and, and have a look for that sort of setup, whether it's in the industrial fence or something a bit smaller. Uh, yeah, uh, but that's, that's about it from my side. And anything else, to, anything that we missed on, on this heat transfer topic that we, that we should add or that you want to add? Uh, I don't think there's anything in terms of the, the science behind it. Um, if anyone has any specific questions, they can reach out to me. Uh, and maybe you can put your, or put my email in your uh, show notes. We can, uh, they, they can go to the, to the comment section in the show notes and uh, comment there. And I'll let you know if, uh, if questions come in there. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I wanted to say was that uh, we are working on something like all this uh, heat transfer background really got us thinking. So we are working on a few things that will help people uh, deal with their, their heat buildup during races. And the initial lab testing has been very effective. Um, so we're, I don't want to be too secretive about it. We're about to put in a, a patent application. So once we've got that in, um, I'll, I'll share the details with you and, and tell you what we're, we're thinking of, but, uh, we're quite excited about how well it works so far. And, uh, it seems like it'll be a pretty practical solution for a lot of long course racers. Yeah, I, I can volunteer as uh, as a Portuguese guinea pig here, and yeah, we'll definitely keep the listeners updated when when you have any news and are ready to to share the details. Excellent, that sounds great. Perfect. Uh, thanks so much, Andrew. I want to remind the listeners of your previous interview together with uh, Michael Lieberson in episode forty seven as well. So I'll link to that as well. It was on the virtual wind tunnel technology that you developed, and then you, of course, uh, the the main part of your business is uh, the the indoor trainers and. Everything can be found on stackzero.com, which is also linked to in the in the show notes. And anything else like general company related or places that you want people to to follow Stack and everything that you're up to? Yeah, if someone uh, someone would like to follow us, we've got our um, our Twitter, which we try to keep to more technical sides of things. Uh, that's at Stack Performance. Then we've got an Instagram uh, and a Facebook page as well. Um, so Twitter is where I like to show some of the simulations and things that we've been working on the neat technical side of things. So in the past we've done, uh, drafting simulations. So for example, if you're following a camera bike, how, how effective that would be, um, things like that I find are kind of cool and it's neat to get out there and provide some information. Cause a lot of people have questions about, uh, aerodynamics and the impact, especially when you look at the increased TV coverage that a lot of the races are getting now. So it um, it answers some of these questions that people have been asking about the rules, and it's it's just a neat forum to uh, to show some of this information. All right, thank you so much, Andrew. It was great talking to you again, and uh, talk to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. So I hope that you found this interview just as interesting as I did. Uh, my main takeaway really is to for you to realize just how significantly heat buildup and your core body temperature will affect performance. So 
I, I encourage you to go back and listen to those numbers, those examples that uh, Andrew had spent a lot of time really calculating for us. I, I don't. I, I want to make that clear. Andrew spent a lot of time preparing for this episode, uh, which uh, I am really, really happy that he did because it ended up being fantastic content. Uh, and, and I hope that you appreciate the work that he put into it. But when you go back and listen to those numbers, you realize that this is something that you'll have to factor into your race planning. But even your training planning, if you're training in a hot environment, which might be something as simple as training indoors. So if you don't have a good fan for your indoor bike training setup, you're actually most likely not getting the most out of your training, at least when you're doing longer and harder workouts, then the heat buildup in your body might be limiting you from from having another level of performance in you. So that's the main takeaway for you to realize how important this is for for both racing and training. And then the different tactics that you can use. We talk about them like slush drinks and freezing your fluids, etc. Just go back and and listen to, to all of them. But when you realize how important this is, then it will be pretty easy to figure out how to stay cool. Of course, you can go and look at the show notes directly on thattriathlonshow.com and any comments or questions, I'll leave them there. Uh, just scroll down to the bottom of that show notes page and that's where the comment section is. So go and uh, and ask your questions or uh, submit your comments right there. Make sure that you also check out episode 47, which I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, it's on the virtual wind tunnel technology that I already mentioned. And it's uh, Andrew Buckrell is on, but also coach Michael Lieberson, who also uh, does a lot of bike fitting. And so we talk about how bike fitting plays into using the virtual wind tunnel. Finally, because it's Christmas, I also want to take a quick opportunity to plug my training plans that you can find on scientifictriathlon.com. This might also be a great Christmas gift for your loved ones or for yourself for that matter. The most recent plan that I added was the intermediate 70.3 training plan that I have and it has been very popular so far. It's uh, 16 weeks long, so if you're training for a spring or even a summer 70.3 or half distance event, now is the time to get it. If you buy it through my website, it has a 100% satisfaction guarantee, uh, as do all my training plans when you buy them through my website, because that's where I can control that. If you buy through Training Peaks, I have no control over it. Training Peaks uh, sells the plans and I just get a commission. So therefore, I cannot offer any sort of guarantees there. But when you buy a a training plan on my website, you can be sure that it's completely risk-free if you are not happy for whatever reason you can get your money back. There's even not, not even a time limit for that. It's a lifetime. Another plan to consider is the strength training plan, which uh, is also relatively newly released, but it has also already been used by hundreds of athletes. So it's been super, impo- uh, super popular. And all the reports and the feedback that I get back is overwhelmingly positive. So thank you so much for that. And I'm really glad that it's helping you guys. So go to scientifictriathlon.com and click through to training plans and you can check out all the details there. And if you want, you just buy these plans and give them as a Christmas gift to your uh, triathlon friends, family and acquaintances. Finally, let's thank Stack again. Stack is sponsoring this episode and you can find Stack on stackzero.com. And that's where you can buy any of their bike trainer models. They are completely quiet. They are portable and fold nicely. And there's no wear and tear on the tire because they use magnets rather than a resistance flywheel. 
And importantly, you can get 20% off your order when you use the promo code that triathlon show, all one word, all caps on stackzero.com. And big thank you to Roka for supporting a Death Triathlon show. You can find them on roka.com or eu.roka.com or uk.roka.com for those specific regional websites. And uh, take 20% off your entire order with the promo code Death Triathlon show, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.